0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of the In Context podcast. Today, I have a, a brand new friend of mine. He is uh, called Alex DiPrima, and he is the author of this fantastic book. Not many people in the UK will have read this yet. It's Spurgeon and the Power*. Uh, but rather than waffle on, I'll let him introduce himself. Uh, good to meet you, Alex. How are you doing, brother?
1: I'm doing well, Ian. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you for, for having me on the podcast. Uh... So yeah, uh, Alex DePremon, pastor here in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, across the pond, Uh church we planted uh, six years ago now, and um I'm married to my wife, Jenna. We have three children, uh, ages two through five, and uh, my primary work is that of being a pastor. I'm thankful I get to do some writing on the side and stuff like that, but the the primary uh, warp and woof of my life is preaching uh, Sunday by Sunday, expositional preaching through the word. Uh, seeking to lead our elders, uh, pastor the flock here. Uh, these have been rich years for us. The Lord has blessed uh, the church that's been planted. We think he's helped us in wonderful ways. And um, and so I feel like I'm doing the thing I was born to do and love to do, and I'm very thankful to God for that. And so uh, in terms of Spurgeon, and the, the book has recently come out, Spurgeon and the Poor, um, I did doctoral studies here. Uh, I had the, the time and the means to do that. And so invested in looking at Spurgeon in a more intensive way. I'd always loved Spurgeon, appreciated Spurgeon, uh, but especially looked at uh, his social concern, mercy ministries, his evangelical activism, his church planting, all that kind of stuff. And uh, so I wrote my dissertation on that, and then later thought, there's, there's something here for pastors and churches that needs to be explored in greater depth. And so I wrote, the, the book is not my dissertation exactly, but more a popular treatment, a more accessible treatment of the subject of how Spurgeon uh, sought to minister among uh, poor and working class people in London and throughout the UK and uh, particularly how he understood social concern and good works of benevolence, mercy, ministry, etc., Uh, in its relationship to the gospel itself. And so that's kind of the, what's going on there in that book. And I'm thankful to have other opportunities now to write about Spurgeon and that's kind of a side project and just a passion project I get to do, which I'm thankful to God for.
0: Well, When I first saw the the title of this book, I was extremely excited. A lot of people uh, are so keen to emulate uh, Spurgeon in the pulpit, uh, Mm -hmm. the same as the Prince of Preachers, and uh, would love to replicate his work uh, either writing or in the pulpit. But what I'm hoping to see is off the back of this book that many more people will want to replicate his work uh, amongst and with the power of the uk and across the world i think it's really exciting it's the first time i've really looked in depth at the work that uh, spurgeon has done with the her i knew he was involved with the pastor's college and reaching and thomas medus with which medus ministries is named after um, but i think the work that he's doing uh that that you've that you've shown us in this book is is exciting but what we see, we've worked the day with books like City to City and uh, Tim Keller, and uh, a lot of people are, are looking to the city and seeing that if we reach the city, then the gospel will trickle down. Whereas London had a uh, sorry, whereas Spurgeon had a similar idea where he saw London as the gateway to the world. Mm. But what is the difference between how Spurgeon saw that he could reach London with the gospel for? Uh, but revival, what is the difference between Spurgeon's approach and that of maybe City to City and Keller and much of the work that we see in the world today?
1: Well, there would be a a number of significant differences. Um, I think I'm not as familiar with Tim Keller, obviously, as I am with Spurgeon, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I'm aware of, of what he's done and what he's doing through City to City. And I've read his book, Center Church, which is helpful um i think those two men would want to see the same thing in terms of the outcome and that is uh churches planted and well established in center cities that become uh bright shining lights to the rest of the world and the idea is you kind of work outward from these center cities and in that sense uh spurgeon believed there was a priority a special priority to reach london Mm -hmm. uh Keller is famous in our country for wanting to reach cities in particular. Uh, and Spurgeon would have some agreement with Keller there. Uh, so Spurgeon uh, plants, as far as we know, about 187 churches in Britain. Uh, more than half of those are in London. Hmm. And we have lots of statements from about the, the special need to reach London. It was the largest city in the world in his day, largest city in the world throughout his entire life. Uh, I think tripled in size between the time he was born to the time he died and thought, you know, look, this is, this is the essential priority here. But you emphasize what seems to be a missiological difference between the two men. Uh, In, in Keller's case, there is an emphasis on reaching the social elite. Hmm. I know then too, he would not say, I don't think to the neglect of the poor, um, but probably so that we would better be positioned to reach the poor. Hmm. Um, So I think that Keller would see a priority of reaching those who are the primary exponents of culture, um, university training, industry, those kind of things. You reach people in those sectors and then there will be kind of this trickle-down effect that will help transform cities. Maybe there's something to that. Um, Spurgeon's approach was different though. Spurgeon is in a very different context where the typical person uh, in London uh, is working class. Uh, The typical person in London, many of them would be illiterate. Uh, or be lacking in basic rudimentary education. And his concern in his context was with elitism and credentialism, that if we don't train pastors from among the working class, from among the people themselves, uh, they're not going to be reached. Uh, These people that Spurgeon's trying to reach in London, uh, they're not going to be reached by academicians or professional scholars or professional ministers who come down from Oxford or Cambridge and want to lecture them about systematic theology or, or... you know, um, different mechanisms for uh, political or social reform. They need to hear from men men of the masses, uh, men of the people Mm -hmm. who are drawn straight from among them and are trained and are qualified and are enabled to preach the gospel in, he would say, you know, blunt Anglo-Saxon, you know, not kind of the stuffy, grandiloquent. He he talked about preachers have stained glass in their throat, you know, as they preach. He's (laughs) like, we don't need that. We don't need lecturers. We need men who go right to the heart of the people, and such men will be especially fitted, suited Mm -hmm. uh, to reach the people. And he thought that that would be the primary mechanism by which revival would come to London. Um, Then it could be debated by historians and scholars and missiologists and pastors on which approach is better suited for, say, like London today, which approach has been more fruitful or successful missiologically. But that would be the relevant difference. I do see Heller, as emphasizing a kind of top down approach, a trickle down approach, we reach the culture creators, uh, the ones who are influential uh, culturally, and it trickles down. Mm-hmm. Spurgeon is going to be much more ground up. Let's go straight to the people and draw out men from among the people who would then be qualified, well suited to lead them. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, encouraging.
0: Encouraging, yet quite the opposite to what we see in uh, the
1: UK in particular today. Uh, in in the u.s it would be a mixed bag right uh so keller's approach would definitely be appreciated by many and there is a priority of many denominations on reaching the cities in particular Mm -hmm. but um there is also among especially baptists uh a willingness to receive men who maybe don't come from you know highly educated backgrounds maybe don't even have their seminary training but nonetheless are qualified able to preach and able to pastor uh so it's it's just, I think, rural ministry in the states, from one angle, is thriving in a lot of ways, um, and among poorer classes. But um, it's a mixed bag.
0: Yeah, I think the the only reason I got to preach uh, was because preachers and pastors weren't willing to move to the town where I live and fill the vacancy. <laughs> sure. So that benefited me in one sense, in in a, in a similar sense. Reading about Thomas Medhurst uh, prior to setting up Medhurst Ministries and, again, reading what we find out about him here in in your book, uh, I was probably in a similar place to him. I, I got saved. I'd heard the gospel. I, I loved Jesus. I loved his church, and I loved the lost, and I had a zeal to share the gospel. But along with that zeal, uh, there was a lot of naivety and not heresy because it, it was error rather than... Uh, heresy Uh, I didn't know how to handle the bible well and uh, I didn't know where to go to be taught how to handle the bible well fortunately I was convicted as I was preaching I can't remember the verse it was in particular that I was preaching from it spoke about heresy and at that moment when I read the verse I thought how do I know this isn't heresy what I'm preaching today so that led me to uh, uh, search for an organization that could help me preach and handle the barrel, well, so praise God, that happens. Um, amen, yeah, but I, I think uh, we see a lot of help for the poor. the church in this country do has a heart for the poor it It provides food banks, it provides homeless shelters, it seeks to help people in crisis, but it seems to have a low expectation of the poor. It stops that crisis intervention. And doesn't seem to prepare people for or encourage people and train people from a poor or working class background into ministry so what was the kind of things that Spurgeon did to not only transform the the physical problems of its community but to help the working class people change their community spiritually what did uh, yeah realistically
1: yeah that's a good that's a good question Ian. um so by 1884, the tabernacle, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which the church Spurgeon pastored, uh, had 66 benevolent institutions operating out of the church. And Spurgeon was intimately involved in, in many of them, most of them even. Now, what should be noted about those ministries, I mean, they, they encompassed practically every area of human need. Mm-hmm. Orphanage, uh, pastor's training college, evening classes for a education for working class folks. He did the food banks, the clothing banks, ministries to police officers, prostitutes, subsidized housing for widows, um, all kinds of things. But there there should be a couple things that are said here about how he viewed those ministries operating and what long-term or even primary function they serve. He believed that there was an inherent good in relieving human suffering and need, that, that just giving a cup of cold water, even if it's not attached to a gospel tract, is just a good thing to do. Christians should be known to be kind and benevolent and generous and we should want to alleviate human suffering in all its forms. But with almost all of those ministries, he connected them. Uh, there are two things that should be n- noted here. He connected them in some way to gospel proclamation. So none of the ministries I'm aware of were simply about offering material aid or or uh, you know, physical relief only. Uh, so uh, it was not just about providing for some need or element of deprivation in society. He, so he has many street missions, children's ministries, ragged schools, Sunday schools. In those settings, there's always going to be some, some kind of evangelistic presentation or the preaching of the gospel or presentation of the truth. Uh, that happened in the orphanage. The kids were not only taught reading, writing, and arithmetic, they were given religious instruction. Uh, there were efforts to kind of draw those from the benevolent ministries into the life of the church. So, the meetings of the blind society, for example, were held at the tabernacle. They might have a brother from the pastor's college come and maybe give a 10 minute, you know, short sermon. And then, you know, members of the tabernacle would sit among the people and talk to them, get to know them, that kind of thing. So, there was an effort to bring word and deed together. He, he didn't just want, Virgil did not just want to see lots of good deeds done, though he wanted to see that. Uh, he wanted to see the word attached to it. So he would reject the idea, that quote that's often attributed to Francis of Assisi, which I don't think he ever said, you know, mm-hmm. which is, you know, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. He would say, well, there, you can't preach the gospel without words. We can't just do good in the city by, you know, clothing people and feeding people and helping people. We need to bring them to Christ. That's the ultimate good we can do anybody. And all that other good is useless if we never ultimately point them to Jesus. So there was always gospel proclamation in some sense brought to the table in the benevolent ministries but also the ministries were highly personal. So what I mean by that is there was always a member of the tabernacle somehow involved in an intimate way in these ministries whether they're the ones you know mentoring students and teaching classes or the ones trying to provide aid to the widows that were you know supported through the almshouses or you know whatever there were members of the church who were connected in a personal way with these people. Uh, and the reason for that emphasizing such a personal touch to these ministries was to try to put people in contact with Christian people so that people would appreciate this is a distinctly Christian witness. And those people in the course of conversation, in the course of their benevolent ministry, mercy ministry could develop relationships and contacts and share ultimately, eventually the gospel reasons undergirding their benevolent aid and mercy ministry, So I don't think Spurgeon would be happy if we just, you know, dug wells in Africa in an impersonal way, you know, that never involved any sort of commending of the gospel or connecting that ministry to the gospel itself. He's for digging wells in Africa. If it's done in a way that commends Christ, his gospel, it's personal. This is the Christian community doing this work. So he'd want to see benevolent ministry ultimately serve gospel ministry. He'd want to see those people that he helped ultimately brought into the life of the church. That would be the goal. It wouldn't be a condition for extending aid, but it would be a goal or object in extending aid. Mm. Yeah,
0: and it's it's sad that I, I recently had to do a paper on uh, what each ministry could learn from one another. And it was saying like the distinct ministries of church planting and community transformation, and I'm like, well, they shouldn't be distinct.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Spurgeon would insist on that. He would say that the church is the hope of the world. Yeah. And these local churches are to be these these cities on a hill, these bright and shining lights that are known for ministry of word and deed. And they will be, if there's going to be any transformation of a city or a, a, a town or village, uh, it will have to come through genuine revival where people are converted, brought into the church and um, all that kind of stuff.
0: And again, it's... It... It shocked me. I don't know why it did shock me. I'm a, I'm a pastor myself, so I <laughs> know what being a pastor is like, and I know that what I say, uh, some of the congregation might agree with and many might not. So I, I, I don't know why I was surprised when I found out some of his own congregation would often disagree with some of his ideas, and in particular with Thomas Medhurst, uh, I just presumed that if somebody got saved under Spurgeon's ministry and they wanted to preach, they'd be encouraged. But tell me a little bit about thomas medhurst about his struggles and and maybe some of the battles that spurgeon faced in getting his holistic ministry to local uh church planting and community transformation happening
1: yeah well you know thomas medhurst so spurgeon starts a ministry known as the pastor's college which is a training college for men pursuing pastoral ministry and uh, thomas medhurst was the first student now now Spurgeon did not dream this up one day. I'm going to start a pastor's college in, in the center of London, and it's going to reach working class men and teach them how to preach the gospel and you know help fit them for ministry. He never like had that dream or that vision. What happened was t. W. Medhurst was converted through his preaching. Medhurst was beginning to preach himself like I think in the open air and was seeing men and women converted under his ministry, but Medhurst was from a poor and working class background. he didn't have the means to pursue an education in one of the other you know, Baptist colleges of his day. He back in those days, Ian, you would probably know this. Uh nonconformists like the Baptists wouldn't even be accepted at Oxford or Cambridge, unless you could affirm the Anglican, you know, statements. Uh, it wasn't until 1870 that that changed. So but you could have gone to Bristol Baptist, uh, Angus, you know, those types of places. And um but uh it, the the it would the cost of entry was too high for a guy like Medhurst. So Medhurst eventually kind of attaches himself to Spurgeon, wants to meet with him, and and Spurgeon is kind of discipling him, discovers that he has gifts to to preach the Bible, but is kind of a rough-and-ready kind of guy. And Medhurst wants to be trained. Spurgeon wants to see him trained. So originally, Spurgeon uh, asked a a friend of his, the Reverend C.H. Hoskin is his name, who I think was a congregationalist, uh, to uh, start training Medhurst. And Spurgeon's end of the bargain was he would pay for it financially. So that was the original arrangement. Well, as this grew, um, it grew into more of an enterprise where Spurgeon himself became the president and organized as the pastor's college in 1857. Um, But yeah, the original intent was, look, here's this guy, Medhurst. He seems to be a man of true character and piety, seems to be qualified according to the Bible. He seems to have a growing ability to preach and teach, but has not had access to any kind of pastoral training, practically in theology, in Greek and Hebrew, in homiletics, in, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of fields like that. Um, And so Spurgeon wanted to see a way whereby men like that could enter pastoral ministry. And um, originally, he supported the pastor's college entirely through his own pocket. Um, But eventually, that became unsustainable. And so uh, he, uh, the the Metropolitan Tabernacle eventually adopted the pastor's college as an officially supported ministry of the church. It was still a separate entity had its own administration and management and all that, but the tabernacle supported a good deal of the, the need you know, as the student body grew, and it grew massively over the course of his life. So from 1857, the official founding of the college, the Spurgeon's death in 1892, he trained something like 863 men. Um, by the end of his life, uh, this was extraordinary when I came across this in my research, 20% of all the Baptist ministers in England, like serving in pulpits actively. In 1892, when Spurgeon died, 20% of them uh, had been trained by Spurgeon. So one in five, there was a Baptist man preaching on a Sunday in England in 1892. Uh, One in five of them would have been trained through Spurgeon's Pastors College. So a remarkably fruitful ministry. And many of these men uh, pastored in London. Many of them pastored in rural areas. Spurgeon had a heart for rural areas. He saw the cities are strategic, but had a heart for rural ministry. He himself began in rural ministry. Uh, so many of them are in towns and villages across the country, um, and some of them are occupying very prominent pulpits. Uh, so some of them pastor, like in Cambridge at St. Andrew Street Baptist Church, which is where Spurgeon taught Sunday school when he was a kid. Uh, and then some of them are large church plants, like where Archibald Brown pastored in the East London Tabernacle, um, thousands of people at that church. So uh, many of these men became quite influential in their own ministries. Yeah. Wow.
0: So, so these men would have been working class men. So 20% of the Baptist
1: preachers were working class at that time. Well, I would say probably the majority of the men who studied at the pastor's college were working class men. But Spurgeon was willing to receive men who had an academic background. But he, this is an interesting point, Ian. He just says, you know, your degrees and, and credentials mean nothing in terms of your qualifications to study at this institution. So he wasn't—he wasn't against having credentials. His own brother, James Archer Spurgeon, who became his associate pastor in 1867 or 68, he—he uh, he had uh, terminal degrees, uh, pursued you know more scholarship. He wasn't against that, yeah. but it just—it—it—it did not phase him. It wasn't—it wasn't, it wasn't a, a factor for him in terms of whether or not you could study at this school. And I do think it's, it would be valid to say, Ian, he seemed to have a preference to bring in working class men. So of those 863 men, I haven't done the math, but my guess would be the majority of them were drawn from the working class Mm -hmm. and did not have uh, degrees before they entered the pastor's college. But some of them we know certainly did. Um, But it wasn't a requirement at all. And it didn't increase your standing or your odds of getting into into the degree. We could talk about the requirements of admission. I mean, from one sense, from one angle, they were quite low in terms of financial or educational background. They were high in other respects. and, And maybe we could talk about that.
0: Yeah yeah no that that is interesting because I think the church in the UK struggles with the working class and people from my background and the requirements are either too high as in so for me I couldn't get I couldn't train to be a pastor because I didn't have a degree so I, I struggled to find seminary training or any training online or distance that I could do. And even when I found stuff, I struggled to to afford to pay for it. So that no. so I was uh, similar to why uh, the pastor's college was started, was people were barred from ministry because of educational or financial background. But then what I also find is other people, the bars are set too low where they just expected people from my background to uh, be served by the church to to come and have their needs met where the bar is set very low. There's no expectation for people to be discipled, to show our sanctification, to show ministry training for deacons or elders or for for pastors. So, yeah, what was the balance like for speaking to enable all people to train, to have an expectation of godliness, but also let the class have no impact on who becomes
1: Yeah, well, well, you know, so like I said, the standards were high and low from different perspectives. The standards were very low for admission from the standpoint of educational background or financial ability. So what I mean by that is it was not a um, a demerit if you came to Spurgeon with no educational background. Some of the men who entered the college were actually illiterate. They couldn't read. And he taught them to read. Um Now, he believes in an educated ministry. You're going to come here and get educated. So those guys were required to do remedial education. These men were taught Greek and Hebrew. They were encouraged to read the classics. I mean, he wanted an educated ministry. But that wasn't a requirement in terms of admission to the college. And he thought, look, are the only qualified men in the world from among people who could afford, you know, uh, distinguished degrees? Of course not. Uh, What qualifies a man is not uh, his financial or educational ability. Oh, it qualifies a man who is fundamentally his character and God given gift. So he, he wouldn't discriminate against someone on that basis. The, what he would criticize is many of the colleges in his own day of setting the bar too high at that level, making the cost of entry impossible for men like C.W. Medhurst and the majority of many trained through his college who ended up being very fruitful pastors. So he had an issue, like, like many in our day have an issue. Are we presenting hindrances and obstacles to otherwise qualified men entering the ministry? because they come from a lower economic class. So the bar was set low. All the education was free. Uh, uh, He provided room and board for his students. He he sometimes even gave them pocket money to spend. Um, Yeah, he provided books for them, all that kind of stuff. He he just determined, look, finances are not going to be an issue here. Then he found the money somehow. Similarly, educational standards were quite low. Uh, and he was willing to bring those guys up to the starting line. So he had evening classes where you could learn basic you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, science, um, that kind of stuff, uh, and that would help you in your course of study at the Pastors College. So low standards of entry in that sense, very high standards of entry from another standpoint. So there were three things in particular Spurgeon required of all those who had entered the Pastors College that I think could be considered high, high standards of entry. First, there was to be, there needed to be demonstrated a high quality in terms of personal piety and godliness. These men needed to be qualified according to the Bible, First Timothy 3, Titus 1. They needed to walk with God, demonstrate sanctification and holiness. Um, and if he had reason to believe these men were not the real deal, and they, they weren't walking with God, didn't truly really know the Lord, not only in a saving way, but in kind of an intimate kind of communion with God, uh, he wouldn't let them join. He He wanted men who were known for evident Uh, piety, personal communion with God, clear uh, virtue and character and integrity that marked them according to the qualifications we have in the Bible. And if he didn't think that was present, and he would, not only would he make his own assessment, he would send visitors around to inquire about the man in terms of his own character. And if they didn't pass muster there, they couldn't join. Mm -hmm. The second sort of higher qualification or higher standard uh, Spirit had, is that all the men were required to be ministers or preachers already. And not necessarily in that they had been formally recognized for that office, but like Medhurst, they had done preaching. They were not inexperienced. Typically, he required two years of active church work of some kind, whether that was preaching, evangelism, organized Bible studies. These were men who were workers for Christ and had demonstrated that in their track record. Uh, He says, we don't want genteel loiterers, he said. You know, we want working men, men who have done nothing up to the time of their admission to the college are not allowed in. And so if these men did not have experienced preaching, evangelizing, teaching the Bible in some way, he wouldn't have accepted them. And, and along those lines, uh, he would expect to see some conversion work uh, under their ministries. Not in that he felt guys can engineer the fruit of conversion, but he viewed that as kind of the normal kind of typical seal uh, that was um, uh, given to a man's ministry. Um, So what did I mention? I said uh, uh, the character qualifications being high, personal piety being high, uh, also uh, involved in some measure of preaching experience. And then uh, the third one would be churchmanship. So these guys were actively involved in local churches. They were engaged in a meaningful way at the level of church involvement, were known among their pastors and other church members and all of that. Uh, so these things were to be kind of kind of leading indicators for Spurgeon uh, on whether or not a man was qualified to study at the college. So high and low from different different perspectives.
0: Convicting and challenging. I dread to think what he would have found out if he sent some sent someone to speak to my neighbors.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, 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 it, for, for Spurgeon, it was it was I think I think he was conditioned primarily by the Bible. Mm-hmm. If we, if we, if the Bible, we don't need Spurgeon to be our, our North star. The Bible is our North star. And if the Bible is our North star, what will we value? Not credentialism and professional ministerialism and, you know, guys, business acumen or degrees. We're going to value character. We're going to value churchmanship. We're going to value spiritual gifting that comes from the Lord himself. Those are the things the Bible clearly states in numbers of places to be what make for qualified pastors. And I think Spurgeon's, his his perspectives were regulated by the Bible in that respect. Now, if I could say, Ian, Spurgeon was not anti-education. He was not anti-intellectual. He himself, though he didn't go to college, encouraged men to go to college. He was a spectacular autodidact. He read prodigiously. had one of the largest libraries among ministers in England, mastered that library. He knew Greek and Hebrew himself. He read poetry, read the classics. You know, so he's not saying... He wants wants these men to grow in their intellectual abilities and in their educational abilities. But in terms of letting a man begin to study, why should we require that he meet certain marks educationally before he enter in? That that would be his concern.
0: So how did he protect against what happened to me? So I I came from an uneducated background. I joined a church that was predominantly middle-class, professional and, and academic. I then started training alongside middle-class academics and I suddenly found myself rejecting the culture that I came from in favour for assimilating to the new culture that I joined and prizing things that were, were which were good but at the expense of good things from my previous culture, I started dressing differently, uh, yeah. talking differently, uh, talking differently enough for me to still be different within the church. There was I wasn't fully endeared by the church that I joined, but I was an alien to the people that I'd left behind. So my ministry suffered uh for a period of time uh and, and my own walk suffered because I felt an alien within the church and within my local community. So, how did Spurgeon manage to retain that authenticity, the working man's mm. culture that he prized for reaching other working men, yet help them embrace and and, and, and kind of bring a, a semi-assimilation so they accepted the good things from academia, yet we mm-hmm. take good things from their own
1: culture? Yeah, that's an excellent question, and I, I've never been asked that, uh, nor have I thought about it extensively. So I'd have to think more before giving like a really well-considered answer. A couple of things come quickly to mind. I think given the character and culture of the pastor's college, that wasn't a huge temptation. To mm-hmm. so my own seminary experience, I'm not knocking my seminary. I had a wonderful seminary experience here in the States. But um, there was a temptation as I was getting educated, you know, kind of academia and scholarly work and the allure of all of that and the prestige of all of that did become something to be desired. I was aiming for pastoral ministry, not scholarly work. But, you know, as, as I made inroads in that world, I thought, wow, wouldn't this be nice? Couldn't this be you know? And um, that, that was not the fault of my seminary, but it, it was enticing not a lot of men at the pastor's college are doing that. some of them went on to be professors, actually, a few of them at least. But um, what what seemed to be valued among Spurgeon and his men in that network was serious church work, um, church planting, evangelism, reaching the lost, reaching the poor. That was the culture. So I don't think there were many temptations to, yeah, become a kind of fine gentleman. And all of a sudden this guy, you know, with a Cockney accent, you know, all of a sudden is wanting to. You know uh meet with professors over at Cambridge or something like that. He wanted to do church work um no offense to Cambridge professors um, or folks with cockney accents um but yeah, so i think I think um that was the culture. but I think Spurgeon himself was the the grand model for these guys. Spurgeon had very famous and distinguished friends mm-hmm. uh William Gladstone was a close friend who would visit Spurgeon in his home uh John Ruskin the great social critic and literary guy was very close with Spurgeon. I mean, he had uh, 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 prime ministers and members of parliament who would come and hear him preach on a regular basis. President from this country, he wasn't quite president yet, James A. Garfield came and visited the tabernacle and would meet with Spurgeon in his vestry. He knew how to talk to gentlemen, and he knew how to speak to the issues of the day, and he knew how to deal in the realm of academic discussion and debate but he never lost his touch with the people. Mm-hmm. And so I think you the men, you know, Spurgeon was so, he's was larger than life. And these men adored Spurgeon. I think he provided them an example of how you can navigate different social situations without losing yourself. It really is amazing to consider how I mean, Spurgeon became an international celebrity. And yet he never lost, I think, the essence of who he was. He never, to use the, the term we use here, he never sold out. Yeah. Um And he never lost touch with the people. And that's what I think. uh, So I think you have that modeled by the president, by the major figure, the major paradigm. And then the culture of the institution was such that I don't think guys were tempted very much. Uh, There was not much to be gained. You wouldn't gain much approval by altering who you were. Um, You wanted to be prepared and then sent back out. And that was the culture and climate of the college. But I I want to think about that more. It's a really good question.
0: Yeah, it's something that I'm thinking about for, for, for a study that I'm doing and uh, just to to guard my own heart and to help people that I'm training because we want to give people opportunities, yet we also want to keep the ministry to the poor in mind, don't we? So, uh, again, I'm, I'm far from anti-academic, um, but sometimes I do find it easier sitting in a room by myself reading a good, good book than <laughs> dealing with no, the, really. ministry.
1: Well, I'll share from my own testimony. I came from a working class background. Neither of my parents went to college. Uh, I worked in a, a plant for seven, eight years, a factory. Um, and getting a PhD was not in the cards for me. It, it's insane that that ever happened. And I noticed myself changing. And there's vocabulary used now that I didn't use before. And um, I have wondered at times, does my own ministry appeal more so too? educated classes than it would uneducated classes, and I've had to explore that in my own heart and life, my own ministry. Spurgeon would not encourage us to try to, we're not not necessarily trying to reach any particular class. We want to reach all men, you know, so we don't want to put obstacles to any class, and I think he would say preaching the simple gospel is the remedy. Just preach the word of God, and that will both offend high and low, and it will endear us to high and low among God's elect, and so um he, he's not i wouldn't i wouldn't say Spur, Spurgeon will not he will not accommodate us if we want to think well we're going to be a church for the poor or we're going to be a church for the educated he's saying no no no. you're the church for sinners you know and reach them and don't present unnecessary obstacles either to the poor or to the rich or to the educated or uneducated you know et cetera. which i think is is a good word for us to consider
0: so so having said all that how do you think with the the success of the Pastors' College, uh, the incorporation of the poor and the working class, not just in the in the pews, but also in the pulpit and and even into training. We you said some of the uh, trainees from the Pastors' College went on to be professors. What do you think's changed over the last couple of hundred years and between uh, the UK Church? Uh, as it is today, which consists of I think eighty percent of churchgoers, uh, middle class with uh, with a university degree, and mm. that representative of twenty seven percent of the country. Uh, so the working class and the poor are now largely missing from the church. Uh, no. what, what do you think? Why do
1: you think that has happened first, and then secondly, what do you think Spurgeon would make of it? Ian, that's a tremendous question and extraordinarily complex. So, so I don't know what the numbers are in America. Um, I would think they are probably not as severe as all that, but still, still similar in that you would have among the membership of most evangelical churches in the United States, my guess is they would tend to be more educated and more comfortably middle-class than the broader population. Uh, And you would have less representation among the poor in churches than you would in the broader uh, society. I, I assume that's true. If someone listening could correct me on that, you're telling me though, that's true in the UK. And you're asking what's changed in the last hundred years in the UK. I don't know. I'm not from the UK. Uh, I've tried to study the UK, but I I don't I wouldn't know probably as well as you would, Ian or our mutual friend, Mez McConnell and others might know. I think a, a few things need to be said or at least acknowledged. The social situation we're in today is, very different from Spurgeon's. Mm. Uh, So uh, in the Victorian era, I don't know exactly how this works in the UK. I'm very familiar with how it works in the United States. In the Victorian era, you did not have a very wide and broad mechanism for social welfare. Mm. So many of the services and mechanisms for relief that are provided now by the government were not provided by the government in say eighteen. 54 When Spurgeon arrives in London. So the, the government just didn't view it as its responsibility to take an interest in the public health of its citizenry. Cholera epidemics are happening. It never occurred to the government that that's their problem. Uh, they're not thinking about housing for the poor. That's the poor's problem. They live in slums. You've got overcrowding. Uh, you know, that's, that's industry will figure that out, the, the economy will figure that out, but it's not our job to do anything about it. And what that meant, Ian, was that the needs of the poor, the relief of the poor was primarily left up to the generosity and benevolence of local churches and nonprofit organizations. So if anyone was going to help orphans, it had to be the Christians in London. If anyone was going to help these needy widows uh, who who through, know, you know, their husbands had died or whatever, they couldn't provide for themselves, they're, you know, doing needlework as much as they can, but now they've got arthritis and they can't provide for themselves and their six children that are left behind because dad died of cholera. The government wasn't there to help in 1854. The church had to help. So I think that made, that created stronger contact between the church and the lower classes. Whereas now that work or that um, involvement is primarily the work of the government, at least it is in the United States, to a large degree in the UK. So the church has been replaced in that sense. Now, I say it's complicated. Is that necessarily bad or wrong? I imagine there's plenty of diverse opinions Christians can have on that. Should the government be more involved in programs of social welfare? I think there's a strong argument to be made that they should. People in this country will make arguments that maybe they shouldn't. Um, But you can see, at least socially speaking, I'm not talking about Bible verses now. I'm just talking about historically, socially. The church has less contact with the poor because the government now has primary contact with the poor at the level of social relief. So that's one contextual factor that complicates this equation. Now this is one in, even as I think about this and and say this, I think this would be controversial and could be seen as elitist. And I don't mean it to be. My background, my undergraduate degree was in finance and economics. And I've given a lot of study to that uh, privately over the years. And I do think this just needs to be acknowledged. I'm just, I, I assume we're after real solutions here, right? real answers. (laughs) <laughs> I think this could this this could offend some, but I think it needs to be taken on. The reality is I'll just speak for the United States. The reality is typically those who are active members in evangelical churches tend to pursue those qualities and characteristics that tend toward economic betterment. okay? What I mean by that is the incentive structure in the United States is such that many Christian virtues are typically rewarded with economic betterment so for example in our country uh our country still values diligence largely speaking if you work hard you tend to do well well jesus tells us to work hard um paul tells us if a man does not work he shall not eat we're, we're told to work hard with our own hands to follow paul's example in that well tip, uh, this is this is an easy way i could put the point there's a very popular public intellectual in our country right now who has forwarded the perspective that typically among middle class people there's three things you need three things if these three conditions are met you will almost always be comfortably middle class uh if you uh graduate high school if you don't have children out of wedlock and i think the third is if you just get a job any job does that it could be minimum wage but if you get a job graduate high school don't have children out of wedlock uh in like you know 95% of the time you're middle class Well, whether or not that's true is not what I'm going to, I want to debate right now. But if you follow the Sermon on the Mount, let's say, as Christians ought to, basic principles for discipleship, what will you do? Well, you probably would tend to value a basic education, I would assume. Uh, And you would not have children out of wedlock, typically. Um, And you would see the value, probably, of, of working hard and well. And what does that typically do for the United States? It leads to your economic betterment. It wouldn't be that way in every society and culture. I don't know if it would be that way in the UK, but the fact of the matter is in the United States, Christian virtues, at least as of now, tend to lead to people's economic improvement. And what that means is a lot of people start off poor when they become Christians. And as they follow the Sermon on the Mount uh, or other, you know, uh, statements of Christian virtue, they tend to improve their life situation. They tend to stay married to people uh, that they, they married. Uh, they tend to, you don't have, you know, a big issue in our country is, uh, fatherless kids. The outcomes for kids who don't have dads, uh, in the home is terrible. Well, if all the dads are Christian and they're all staying with their wife and they're keeping their job, what does that tend to do? It tends to help your economic situation. So you can see how that could quickly become a controversial opinion, right? (laughs) That, that, oh, you're saying then that Christians should be middle-class. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, typically, the course that Christian sanctification takes, at least in the United States, is it does have the effect often of improving people's economic outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm trying to give the best possible, like sincere answer I can give, and I think that's one of the factors we have to face. Um, So yeah, you could you could push me on that, or just let that dog lie. You decide. (laughs) No,
0: for me, that is something that is clear. We see the same kind of societal problems, fatherlessness, uh, hedonism, whether that be drugs, alcohol, and promiscuity. Uh, yeah, recklessness with finances, living for today, rather than thinking for the long-term, dropping out of high school, or uh, uh, there's a lot of reasons. Well,
1: for- d- 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 just take that one, Ian, that's a great example. Delayed gratification. People who buy into delayed gratification in the United States, I assume it's the same in the UK, tend to do better economically. The whole Christian worldview is based on delayed gratification. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy really to be compared with the glory to be revealed. We're used to waiting for stuff uh, as Christians. We're waiting for the glory to come, right? So yeah, that what does that bleed down into? I think there's probably a principle for a lot of Christians that they're willing to wait on uh, money to compound interest. You know, uh, They're willing to wait to study hard so they might have the payoff when they, you know, I think that's a factor that just needs to be considered. But it presents missiological difficulties, doesn't it? Because you do have what you're acknowledging, a membership that is broadly middle class and a lower class or a poorer class that feels shut out by the church and that their concerns are not valued. And again, I'm not making any value judgments now. I'm just saying, yeah, that's a situation that probably has been created. What should the church do about it is a very earnest question. And my book is written in part to speak into that question. I think there are things we can do to reach poorer people. And there are obstacles we unnecessarily erect in the path of lower, class, uh, uh, lower classes uh, to access the gospel and have a place in the church. And Springer would have things to say to us, but you see, his, his context is very different. The, the situation in London in 1855 is different from our situation today, and that needs to be taken on if any meaningful solutions are going to be put forward.
0: <laughs> I think in the UK... The way things are going it won't be long before we're back to house the situation is the same as Spurgeon's Day, just for the state of the national health service and uh, since covid and constant mismanagement by every second of, uh, government that's been in whether it was labor or conservative each government have managed to disrupt uh, society for the negative rather than for the better but i i, I agree with that i i, I look at Three reasons for the church not reaching the middle, uh, the working class. First of all, I think the social problems, the social problems being poverty. A lot of Christians are middle class, so we don't have Christian neighbors to share the gospel with us. We don't have Christian colleagues that we work alongside to share the gospel with us. We don't have yes. uh, Christian school children. Uh, most of the, most of the uh, outreach the finance spent on outreach is at university, where are following the city to city model, model with the trickle down thing. So, mm-hmm. most people are being reached with the gospel and middle class. So, there's the social aspect, the structural. So, uh, most of the money is spent on again planting churches in middle class areas. Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, training middle-class pastors to reach middle-class communities so there's the structural things it's difficult for somebody from our background to to train and 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 be accepted on that ministry journey but also there's that self-inflicted so for me what i've noticed is a lot of people who've got saved through our church have come with uh, chaotic backgrounds so many of people have died shortly after being saved because of the consequences of their previous lifestyle whether that's alcoholism or, or drugs. Oh. Uh, there's also people who are on the sanctification journey but end up back in prison because of the lifestyle that we're divin- living or of overdosed. and then there's also that spiritual rejection that poor people reject jesus as much as rich people so yeah, it's right. it, it complex it, it, i think there's three layers but i think the saddest thing that misses that is missing so i'm not blaming middle class I'm saying, look, there's a responsibility for the poor. There's a responsibility for the, for the middle class, uh, for, for why the church is failing to reach the poor. But sadly, there doesn't seem to be that emphasis that Spurgeon had to acknowledge the gifts that poor Christians bring to the church to, mm. to reach it. You mentioned that some of these preachers were preaching that not just to the working class, but were preaching to the middle class and to the elite as well. They were accepted. In Christ, as equals, even though they came from a a class background, and I do think there's that. Yeah, that that is one of the differences that can be changed and can be changed. I agree.
1: Yeah, and it, so all the reasons you just mentioned, Ian, contributing to the problem, I think are all valid. I I would agree with all of them. I as as you're acknowledging, you know, I'm saying also, it's the, the reasons why we have this problem are multivariate. There's several different factors at play here. And um, so I think we need to eschew simplistic answers. This is a a complex issue. And uh, that shouldn't daunt us into putting forward solutions, but we need to really go after the issues here. One thing I will say, so so here's here's something the Baptists did in this country that could be tried. Spurgeon certainly did it. Um, But it has its pros and cons. Baptists have done so well in America, in part because they made the requirements for entering the ministry low from an educational standpoint. So we have way more Baptists now than we do uh, Presbyterians. Uh, The PCA is microscopically small. The Presbyterian Church in America, uh, or even the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, some of the other offshoot groups, uh, very small compared to the number of, say, Southern Baptists. That's the big Baptist denomination here. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason for that is we don't require you to have an MDiv to be a pastor. We don't require that you must know Greek and Hebrew in order to be a pastor. Well, the Presbyterians typically do, at least Presbyterians in our local Presbytery um I'm I'm a baptist myself but I mean in the local presbyterian my city you have to pass ordination exams at the level of the Presbyterian. you have to know greek and hebrew in order to be a teaching pastor and you typically have to have a master's degree and for that reason what do presbyterians have they have a much more educated ministry good for them uh but they have fewer men in their schools fewer men pursuing training well the baptists have way more available preachers you know um and for that reason, are, are probably reaching more people and are um, much larger in numbers. Um, but that said, the Baptists cause way more problems, it seems, than the Presbyterians do. <laughs> the, the, the Baptists are the ones that are so often heterodox. You talked about preaching, wondering, am I a heretic, right? <laughs> um, because we don't have higher academic and educational standards. Like, you don't have to have a seminary degree to be licensed as a preacher in a Baptist church a lot of those guys end up being goofballs, you know, they end up being guys that really should not be preaching. And so a lot of bad things can happen. The kind of rank revivalism we saw in this country, that was fueled primarily by Baptists, who um, were often men that did not have uh, significant pastoral training. So again, you see the problem super complex. I tend to agree Baptists have it right and that you shouldn't require certain educational standards in order to be a pastor. But I'm a Spurgeon in that those three basic qualifications he had, a high degree of piety and character, proven churchmanship, and spirit-given gifts to actually pastor the church and preach the Bible and all that, those need to be present. So um, as with most things, Ian, I'm, I'm, I'm on Spurgeon's side. <laughs> you know, I think there's spiritual much we can fathers. learn from him
0: Spurgeon found spiritual fathers for these men, didn't he? Amen, it's, exactly so. He meant that then we found... That that congregational guy to come in, he utilized other men to come in and mentor these men spiritually and disciple them and keep them accountable. And I think that's another thing we miss within the church. This kind of uh, it's relational. I think we're very bad within the church at relationships between the church and the pastor and between the members and one another. And again, I think that the more father son relationships we have in the church, I think that's when we'll see. Better
1: preaching and better teaching. Yeah. Well, Spurgeon himself had an extraordinary capacity to disciple men and father men as well. So a lot of these guys were under his tutelage. I mean, he, he, it's amazing how many men he was able to maintain intimate friendships with. There was a time, I'll, I'll tell you just a quick story in the 1860s, late 1860s, he writes a personal handwritten letter to every child of every student or graduate of the pastor's college, which at that point had been over 100. You know, he, he's just extraordinary, the, the things he was able to do. And he knew their names and he wrote letters to them. And um, so I think that's a big factor as well. We don't have a Spurgeon, you know, uh, helping to train these men and mentor these men and model things for these men.
0: Well, you think not only don't we have a Spurgeon, but I think we've got too many snowflakes who probably <laughs> <have a> Spurgeon. <laughs> I think
1: that's probably true. I wonder if Spurgeon if the if the world would receive Spurgeon in the same way. In many ways, and I might mention this in the book, I can't remember, but it's like London was ready for Spurgeon. Mm. London was was prepared to receive a man like a Spurgeon. So he he came to London at an auspicious time. And um Lord's providence we understand was over all of that. Definitely.
0: Well, it's it's funny because I'm I'm passionate about the working class being reached with the gospel, about uh, the working class being used for the sake of the gospel, and uh, I'm also trying to be balanced in the past. Probably I came across as aggressive or angry. But even now, as I try and be balanced, as I try and watch my tone and my my hand gestures, <laughs> people will still accuse me of being angry or aggressive when when Talking about inequality within the church, uh,
1: how do you think people would handle Spurgeon today? Then his his rebuke. Well, uh, Spurgeon was often criticized for all kinds of things. Spurgeon Spurgeon would speak very directly when he felt um, burdened about something. Um, and and Spurgeon, you know, I don't find many faults with Spurgeon. He could tend to exaggerate or overstate things sometimes. Um he could be a little too sweeping in his denunciations, and of course that needs to be avoided he He grew more temperate as time went on and and more patient and forbearing but um i think I think on the whole, people would find like i speaking be in my own town, his concerns over elitism and credentialism and um a sort of prejudice against the working class. I think he spoke to those issues so helpfully and profitably and carefully that people would largely receive him on that point. I think people, I think he would get behind networks and associations and ministries that are helping to promote work among the working class, that are training men from among the working class, planting churches in working class contexts. I think he would still speak out against elitism in our day, but I don't think he would give credence to those who want to say everything that's done in middle-class ministry is bad or wrong, which I know you, you don't think that, Ian. I don't think that either. Um, so I don't think he would offend people at that level. I think much of what he's after among reaching needy people from, from the working class, I think our conducts would receive that pretty well. And I think what, what we don't have, Ian, again, it's complex. We don't have great champions for this kind of ministry. But I think there's a vacuum there. Uh, so I'm delighted to, uh, I've been getting more acquainted with your ministry, Medhurst Ministries, uh, 20 Schemes, what Mez and those brothers are doing. There are networks and associations rising up in this country who are involved in this kind of work. Um, I think, but I think more needs to be done. And what I'm hearing from my friends and contacts, even before the book came out, and especially after, is there's a vacuum here, and there needs to be more attention given to this. And I think there will be more attention given to it in the days ahead in in, in the U S and I hope in the UK also. You you may, yeah, you may know this, the support of a lot of the ministries that you and others are about. I don't know if this would be true for Metters ministries, but, but uh, it's true of a lot of groups like 20 schemes and others um, in other countries, a lot of the support for those ministries comes from America. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of, I mean, Lots of support for every kind of ministry comes from America. But there is a desire to see ministry among the working class and poorer classes. Mm-hmm. And um we just don't have as well developed ministries like that in our country. But I think there's a, a hunger and an appetite for more of that.
0: Yeah. Oh no, we're very grateful for the support we have from the US. Uh just prayer support in particular, but also the financial and and we, we have people flying over at their own expense to support the work we're doing and yeah, it's amazing, really encouraged. And uh, we get the same traction and support that we have in the US, uh, replicated within the UK as well. So hopefully people listening to this podcast <laughs> uh, might follow us. Yeah,
1: follow we, yeah we, we in the States too, I'll say, you know, we're suspicious, understandably, of celebrity preachers, yeah. um, a, a lot of highly visible men have discredited themselves and disqualified themselves and there's growing suspicion of these kind of big figures you know and that is valid and understandable i also think it wouldn't be wrong to pray that the lord raise up a spurgeon again he was a bright and shining light used for extraordinary good here we are 150 years later we're still talking about him writing books about him and he's helping us pastor our churches better and lead our churches better maybe the lord will raise up a man like a spurgeon who could be a champion for this kind of ministry I'm praying for that. I know I'm I'm not that guy. I don't have the gifts of a Spurgeon, but the book was you know, Spurgeon and the Poor was an effort of me kind of waving that flag and hey, there's there's a paradigm here. There's someone who was doing this who had a, a ministry of word and deed in the city that was profoundly fruitful, and the Lord blessed. Well, could there be ways we can do that now again? So in that sense, I hope the book provokes others to think more about this, mm-hmm. and, um, and we should pray and the Lord would raise up men like Spurgeon again.
0: Well, it provoked and con. Come- Convicted me because I've often, like many preachers, aspired to be like preacher in, uh, uh, Spurgeon as a preacher in the pulpit. But what's convicted me is seeing what that man did in private, and I think what he did in private was far greater than he ever did in the pulpit. And the lives that he, mm. took those young orphans that he prayed with on the deathbed, and yeah, for me that conviction and reminder that we get into ministry for our local flock not for recognition for how we are here. And although I think that's what we see in his training in the pastor's college, as much as he trained people to preach, he taught people to love, first of all, Jesus, his amen. church, and then the lost, in me.
1: he? Yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, he's a tremendous example to us in that respect. Spurgeon was in private what you would hope he would be based mm-hmm. on what you know of him in public. And most of these stories we have of him, Ian, hundreds and hundreds of stories. Of numerous acts of individual kindness and love and benevolence and charity we only know about them after his death as friends start tell you know hey you know students talking about ways he ministered to their families over the years uh orphans who were telling stories about when Mister virgin visited them when they were in the infirmary and all this kind of stuff so yeah he was he was a, a greater and grander man i think in private even than he was in public
0: awesome well i could chat to you all day it's been fascinating uh, speaking with you, it's been awesome reading your book. Do you know when this is going to be out, other than on in Amazon in the UK? Have you got any plans? It
1: should—I I believe it's uh, on Amazon in the UK now. It, yeah. We're recording this April twenty-fifth. It should be out now. It's available in the UK. I know that from a couple of other places, but it should be on Amazon in the UK. Because
0: cool, I think I got mine sent from America. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's great you can get it in the UK now. I'll put a link on to the YouTube channel where you can buy the book and also to the podcast channel as well. But Alex, I really appreciate your time. It's been an absolute blessing and it's been fascinating. Yeah, and this has been a delight. Thanks for having me on. Awesome, thanks for joining me on the In Context podcast.